Thank you. My name is Frank, and I'm an alcoholic. And my sobriety date is November 3rd, 1971. And uh, and I am pleased to be here. I'm sorry that I'm the only one from the class of '71 that's here. That's a, um, it's something, you know, I guess it's in the eyes of the beholder. And there's a lot of cheering and applauding uh, when people stand up and I'll call it now. It's for me it's sad. Because when I came in 1971, the rooms of I'll call it now and this was filled. They were filled when Johnny came here. And he's the only one that stood up. And Tom, you were the only one that stood up in your year. And when you came to rooms, the rooms across America were full of alcoholics and alcoholic men. And uh, I say that because it's a serious business. Well, I am pleased that I was invited here, and, uh, and I'm particularly pleased that there was so much laughter in, the, um, in this room over the past two days. And I'm a great fan of laughter and alcohol tonight. There's no question about it. But I don't know. I didn't come here because of laughter. I I, uh, I came here because of tears. I was happy that laughter was here, but it was the tears and pain and suffering and hopelessness that brought me here. And I never want to forget that. And I think maybe that the alcoholics of my type forget that, and that's why so few of us stay here. I'd like to make special thanks and welcome to the people I meet all Paul John. Uh, Connie and Bruce came up and got a book. Where's Connie? Thank you. And where's Bruce? Where's Bruce go? Bruce? Okay. Uh, I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you're going to hear as you uh, stay in Alcoholics Anonymous about who's the most important person in the room. So that there's no misunderstanding, I want you to know that I am. <laughs> and everyone else here feels exactly that same way. And the reason that we do is it's because it's our life at stake. And if you reject it, if you find it boring, if you find it trivial, if you find it unnecessary, I must stay and survive. That's the way it is. And uh, some years ago, I made a commitment to myself to never speak to a newcomer without telling the absolute truth. And the absolute truth, Connie, is this. And, and I know, Santa, you were sitting here and uh, how nervous and, and uh, almost ashamed you had to be here. I read that, and that's exactly how I felt the eight days sober. Uh, the truth of the matter is it's tough to come here. It's a, it, for some of us, it's a humiliating experience. Not so much that we're alcoholics, but more so that we need help. That we are not sufficient within ourselves. That somehow, for some reason, we have to reach out to people we don't even know and somehow share that deficiency. And that's contrary to the nature of alcoholics in our time. And I know how difficult that is for Connie. I know how difficult it is for Bruce. And this man who's got 20 days and so many people who stood up in this countdown with less than uh, six months. 
I tell you that the truth is that it's harder to stay here than it is to come here. And that is the truth. And I want you to know that so that you have a fighting chance. This is not a ha-ha. This is not just don't drink, sit down, and we'll all be okay. It's just, I wish it were. I wish that I could tell you that I came in on November 3rd, 1971, and a, and a series of miracles occurred, and I've never been happier, and, uh, and I'm a finished product, and, and I, I just live happily ever after. Right? I really wish I could tell you. I tell you that on November 3rd, 1971, the first human being I ever talked to, and I'll call told me I was not worth it. <laughs> The second, uh, on the second night of my survival in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was brought to a meeting by a, a, a person who was at the first meeting the night before. And at the end of the meeting, the people at the meeting asked that person never to bring me back. <laughs> and here I am, uh, wherever this is, somewhere near Cincinnati, 27 years later, and I am sober all that time. Uh, I'm an unlikely person to be here. Uh, no one would have wagered any money on my survival. And, uh, and uh, you wonder why that is. Uh, am I brighter then? No. More sincere? No. Uh, more intuitive? No. More questioning? No. More deserving? I, I don't know. I, I, I know that I was desperate. I know that I've had desperation. Desperation. And... Uh, I don't know what else I have. I don't know why I'm here. I'm glad I'm here. I guess maybe it just has something to do with people talk to me. And they said things that um, I've never heard before. Um, they shared with me the idea that they were less than perfect that they had trouble living. And you know, as I, as I think back on it, and uh, today I say I'm Frank and I'm an alcoholic, I'm 27 years sober, and you know, that has not changed. My problem is living, and it is, it is as, as present today as it was 27 years ago. Because I'm an alcoholic, and, and, and I have difficulty living with or without alcohol, and alcoholism of my type progresses into sobriety. And, and I just don't get better and better. As a matter of fact, the road gets narrower and narrower. It gets more difficult in one sense. You see, first, you're a day sober. If you tomorrow drink, you can get a day another day. I'm not being cute, I'm not being facetious. I mean, if you just go out and try again, you could try and really get a day in my sleep. I can't get 27 years again. I can't live that long. I won't live that long. If I lose it, it cannot be recovered. I mean, this is it's different. So it's more important that I do the things that were said at this conference than it is for you to do. In that sense, and I don't mean to, in any way, demean your presence here or your, your, your right to survive. But I want you to understand that sometimes when people are new and they look at people behind podiums who are all dressed up and 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 uh, and, uh, and, and, and seem to somehow be spokesmen for alcohol, 
I want you to understand, I am nobody. I am nobody. I'm not appointed by anybody. I'm not sent by anybody. I don't represent anybody. I am a guy who's trying to figure it out. What is that? Is simply, how do you live sober? For some degree of happiness. That's all I ever wanted. When I was a kid, I don't know if they they still tell the story, but when I was a kid, they told a story about Aladdin. I think it was Aladdin's lantern. And and if you find the lantern and you rub the side, the genie appears, and the genie grants you a wish. And that if we all find it, now this room's not called alcohol, there's a lot of non-alcoholics in this room. But if everybody in this room found the lantern, and we were cautioned, before you rub it, be prepared that the genie will come out, and the genie will grant you but one way. Be careful. Who's wiser? And we were given ten minutes to just kind of think about it. I tell you that it is my guess that if we had but one way, we would wish and ask the genie to make us happy. Whatever that might mean to each and every one of us, to be happy. Uh, last night, I sat here and, and, and was reminded by the speakers of how it used to be. They spoke and represented themselves as recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous with a grace and dignity that some, in some places has disappeared in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's not to say that the speakers they did not do the same. I needed those meetings last night more than I needed the meetings today. You know, that happens. It's where we are and what we hear and what we need. And uh, and I thought to myself, we used to raise the bar so that the newcomers said something to reach to. Oh, so often we go around the country and the bar has been lowered for some reason to, I don't know why. We, we can't help everybody. We can't save the world. Something happens, and it's very special when one alcoholic speaks to another alcoholic. And that was true 63 years ago. It's true today. And I hope there will be an alcoholic anonymous 63 years from today. At this time, it also be true. I want to tell the newcomers last year before I get into this, um, what it was like. I want to demonstrate for you one thing. I know it may come as a shock, but I want you to think about that countdown. As the numbers of years started to come up, we did it backwards. There were more people who stood up for two years than for 13 years. There were more people stood up for 13 years than for 23 years. Now, that doesn't mean that alcohol synonymous doesn't work. Absolutely not. In 1939, they published a book that says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our past. The experience between 1935 and 1939 is that this thing works. I mean, it literally works. People who, as a way of life, assume a, a pattern of living, somehow 
something happens that enables them to live without the necessity to drink. It works. It works. The, the, the dilemma of alcoholism is that people like me won't do it. It's just that simple. I won't do it. I won't do it. This is the only disease known to man that the person who has it has no enthusiasm for recovery. In cancer, they say, here's your option. All right, I'll take that. How soon can I do it? If you're going to be blind and you can be restored to sight, you just can't wait for the operation. You, you volunteer to speak out the person who can enable you to see again. You face it. I don't care what it is, AIDS or any kind of illness. If someone says, here, here it is. We can, you can live happily, joyous and free without the need to die from this illness. We, you have any interest step forward. If everybody would step forward and do exactly what was called, but not in alcoholism. In alcoholism, we hear things like this: "I'm not ready." I'm not ready to take those steps. I'm not ready. I'll think about it. Okay, think about it. <laughs> In 1930, 1971, and November 3, 1971, I came into Alcohol Synonymous to read a book called Alcohol Synonymous, and in that side, that book, it said that there were a million people sober in Alcohol Synonymous. And I'm not a real dummy, and I concluded, since I had been sober one day, that I was the least sober person in the world of Alcohol Synonymous. I mean, that's the real truth. I was on the bottom. Everybody in the was sober longer than me. I was in the... 0.01 percentile of sober in the world. Right now, I'm in the 99 percentile. That means 99 percent of all people in Alcoholics Anonymous have less time than me. I tell you that I could not have moved up had the people who were here stayed. about it, we converse about it, we even write about it, but we don't do it. And what a sad thing it is. I, I years ago met a guy who said that the people if 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 the people of alcohol phenomenon would do the things that alcohol phenomenon suggests, there would be no room big enough to hold on meeting. What a wonderful dilemma that would be. What a wonderful dilemma that would be. But I guess it's the nature of alcoholics of my type to demand the right to live, to once again seek myself, to give myself those things. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why that is. I, um, you know what, I'd like to suggest something to, uh, to Connie. Connie, um, I don't want to pick on you, and I don't want to pick on you, but, I, but we're going to use terms here in, in, the, in these remaining minutes, and I don't want to confuse. I want to make sure we're all talking about the same thing. I'm going to talk about social drinking for a minute. Uh, I want to ask you a question. If I had a pill that could make you a social drinker, Bruce, and Connie, and if I had a bit of pill, now this is, a, this is a real pill. I mean, it's an imaginary pill, but for our purposes, it's a real pill. You take one pill one time, 
and you become a social drinker for the rest of your life. Tony, would you take the pill? Yes. Sure. Yes. Sam. Yes. Who yes. The answer is no. <laughs> But you, I don't want you to know that the answer is no because I say it's no. I want us to examine it. Let's think about all your social drinking friends. Conjure up in your mind all the people that you, you uh, right when you're ready to go out and read, uh, that you say to yourself, let's see, which social drinkers should I call to accompany me? Uh, I mean, we must have I mean, we, well, let me ask you a question. So we understand what social drinkers seem like, look like, smell like. When social drinkers meet each other on the street and one suggests to the other they might stop and have a drink, Tony, what they do, if they choose to drink, and most likely chances are they may not, if they choose to drink, they go into a bar, they have a drink, and then they go home. I'd like to live like that. Social drinkers, I'm sure you've seen them, they sit at a bar, and the bartender puts the drink in front of them. And here's what they do. Buckle up, sir. They, they turn to the side, away from the drink, and they look at each other, and they talk. I, I saw that. I was trying on a plane. <laughs> People in, in Saskatchewan asked me to come up and give a talk in, in an ice arena up in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. We were down there. And to get to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, from where I was coming, it was from Naples, Florida. It was 83 and I went to 27 below zero and I, it was just one of you up to the whole series of planes and at the end, the planes get smaller and smaller and the last plane was some goofy plane. I never heard of the airline, uh, and and they had three drinks. I mean, if you had the courage to take this plane, you'd have three drinks. And across from me were two guys, young guys, and they ordered molten lager. And they, they poured this beer-like substance in a, in a styrofoam cup. But it was like a see-through cup, I don't know, I'm not a chemist. But I tell you, what I saw when they poured this thing was gold with a wonderful white head. <laughs> and it was just wonderful. It looked so, so pretty. And, and then I continued to look at these two young guys, and that's what they did. They started to talk, and, and I looked away. And, and, and then I looked back, and and the white head was starting to shrink. And it was like, 
because Tony, if she's never known continuous sobriety, can't imagine it, therefore she could never want it. The hope is that Tony and Bruce and Anna and all the rest might in some way, at some time, want to be like us. And in the desire to be like us, we'll do things that we do. And therefore, hopefully, get the result that we got or get. And I came into alcohol tonight. I was, uh, or when I was, when I was uh, a young man, and uh, when I took my fifth step, and writing my fourth step, all this came to fruition. I, I, I don't know about what it was like for you when you did a fourth step, but I started to realize, I, the first step came was my earliest recollection, right? and, and I didn't think when I sat down with that pen and pencil or paper that I was going to be talking about when I was a kid. I thought we were going to be talking about when I was an adult or when I was in a batterer. When I was just again, and I thought we were going to talk about yesterday, or last week, or last month, or five years from now. But my mind, I opened up my mind, and my, my mind got me as a child, and I realized that, uh, that who I was was my whole life, and my whole life experience. And I remember, I'm a, I'm a product of a, of a, of mother and father who had no formal education. Uh, my father, who died a few months ago, is, uh, was a, uh, a factory worker. And uh, he went to East Raid, and, uh, and he um, people were from Lithuania, of all the countries, which until some recent times was a member of the Soviet Republic, having been occupied in the Second World War. And my mother uh, had gone there to East Raid, I think she started one year high school, but never finished, and, uh, and she was from Ireland, and uh, people were from Ireland, and they were from Michigan. They bought this American dream, and that was that. That, that anything possible in, the, in America. And my father uh, was certain that the key to success and happiness and survival and great things was education. And he has spent his whole life educating his children. And he was certain that if he uh, wore two jobs or three jobs and devoted all that money to education, that his children would have what he never had. And uh, when I was six years old, I did. He told me that I was to be a lawyer. My dad had been a lawyer once. And the lawyer he met with was wise and, and distinguished gentleman. And my dad uh, looked up to him, and, and uh, he said to me when I was six years of age, he says, I want to do that. Um, I was six years old. I, I didn't know what a lawyer was. I, I went out in the playground and, uh, and, and in the field behind the house, and I, uh, I um, talked to the other kids, and they didn't know what a lawyer was. <laughs> Uh, when you're six years of age, what do you want to do when you grow up? You want to be a football player and fireman and policeman and race car driver and race uh, quarterback. You don't want to know a lawyer. I, I, we don't know what a lawyer is. And, and we told my brother he wanted to, he wanted my brother to be a guy. I've done it. And I don't know why he said those two things. And, uh, 
And, uh, and, and uh, that was, that was him. I guess I wanted to be somebody. And he told me that 600,000 times, I guess. I, I don't know, maybe he only told me six times, or 60 times, or 600,000 times. But my only recollection of me was my father telling me I wanted to be somebody. And, and I know now in retrospect he wanted good things for me, and he never felt that accord. But I remember when I heard that, and I'm sitting there, and I'm writing that, I'm 34 years old, and I'm writing that on a piece of paper, it suddenly dawned on me, I never felt like anybody. I thought when my dad said that he wanted me to be somebody, he was telling me I was nobody. He didn't say that. That's what I said. And, and I've been nobody all my life. Trying to be somebody. I don't know how to do that. And it, where the place is like the program. How do you, how do you get to feel, how do you get to be somebody if you aren't anybody? And, and I don't know. And, and I'm six years of age and seven years of age and eight years of age and I'm listening to these about being somebody and, and I guess I've got to be a lawyer. And I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. I, I remember about eight years, I was about eight years old and I knew what I wanted to be, but it wasn't a lawyer. I couldn't come home and tell my dad. But that afternoon, I drove the girl next door and I had, you know, they had these clotheslines in the old neighborhood and they, you know, they ran them from the porch to the garage and then they, they pinned down the, the, the laundry. And, uh, you're shaking your head. You're explaining to everybody what a phonograph record is. I want to tell you. And you're telling about you're drinking Cole 45. There was no Cole 45 as I was drinking. It hadn't been invented yet. But what we did in that backyard is we took a blanket and we made a pen. And that girl and I went in that pen and that day I discovered what I really was destined to be and what it should be. I, 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 I wanted to be a gynecologist. I never told anybody that, though. <laughs> My second recollection of me was um, about God. You know this thing, phenomenon, and I don't really think about God. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you, why are you writing this down? Uh, because I always felt dirty. And, and I learned about God from a lady who was dressed in black and white. She came into a classroom for children and said, Kids, I'm going to teach you about God and I'm going to teach you about sin. And, and as, if, as if they came together, one in hand with the other. And, 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 and I know this really didn't happen, but my re- recollection is that young son unfolded a giant scroll, and on the scroll was just a lot of substances of evil, the venial things, and, and, and it's just an endless amount to tell a lie to support your parents, cheat on a test, and on and on and on and on and on. And, and she said, if you do those things and die, you have offended God, and you must be punished, and you have to go to a place called purgatory. An interesting concept, and and I don't know. I'm a I'm a kind of an impressionable kid, and, and she said, and when you're in purgatory, in order for you to be cleansed, you must burn. 
Now I'm getting, I must be getting this crazy look on my face. And because all of a sudden she like stops herself and she said, if you go to purgatory, it's really not so bad because you only burn two or three thousand years. <laughs> and, and, and I'm eight years old and two or three thousand years seems like a long time. And, and then it got worse. Because later on, in another day, she came into the classroom and she had another scroll. I know this never happened, but it seemed to happen. And on that, on that scroll were things that there weren't so many. And they had things like other people's wives and, and stuff. And they were called mortal things, she said. And if you do those things, you still offend God. You lose the right to be with them. And you go to place of hell, where you are punished for all eternity, and that's even longer than two or three thousand years. And I'm, I'm about nine years old, and I'm looking at that list, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to do all those things. <laughs> I want to do all those things. I mean, I'm not even married, and I'm already knowing that my neighbor's wife's in trouble, because I want her to be in trouble. Because my destiny is to do those things, therefore my destiny is to be offensive to God, and to be punished. And I know that as sure as I'm nine years old, that I'm going to do each and every one of those things once, and later in life, I discovered in most instances, one is not enough. And I grew up with a secret belief that I was uniquely dirty, different, and doomed to eternal punishment. Now, I tell you, that is not an arena and an atmosphere in which it would happen. It got worse. I'm 12 years old and 11 years old, and that woman in black and white comes in that classroom and she says, I want all the girls to step out. Those girls walk out of that room and close that door, and she looks us right in the eye of that old woman in black and white, not to the 22, 23 years old. And she said, Boys, God sees in the dark. <laughs> oh, God. I thought, yeah, but it can't see under the covers. <laughs> So I made a tent. I made a lot of tents. I should have been in the tent business. I perfected tents. And that was the secret. I knew that I did with desired and practiced behavior with little kids, little boys, and others. And I knew that I was secretly and different. And I knew that I was deceptive beyond your understanding. And that my judgment was to be punished. Did she say that? I don't think so. Did any of that happen? I don't know. But that's what I remember.
I've had one short, what is our responsibility to the people who are in need, I'll call Canada. What if this is the only meeting they will ever attend, and I have 30 seconds to tell them something? What would I tell them? What would you tell them? And it totally dawned on me, and I think that day I've said it in every talk I've ever given. If I had 15 seconds of life left, and as my responsibility to all town is to tell you what this is, I would tell you this. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. There is hope here. Thank you. And that's what I'll say. And that's what I'll say. And, and what I want you to know before I go any further is that if you've been here all weekend, you've heard 100,000 words, none of which you will remember tomorrow or the next day or a week from now. And if you stay in Alcoholics Anonymous for a month, you will hear a million words, none of which you will remember next month. It's not important to hear the words. What is important is that you hear the music. This is about music, not about words. There's music here. And I want you, if you hear nothing else from this moment on, to stop your thinking and say, but maybe that's all I'm supposed to hear tonight. There is hope. Yeah. The rest of my story is that uh, I proceeded to be a lawyer and to be a very successful lawyer. And uh, and I got all the things my dad ever thought I should have. And uh, and uh, and by his definition, I got enough. I was an overachiever and I practiced law for 32 years. I retired a senior managing partner of a law firm. I had, by the time I was uh, uh, in my late 20s, acquired more than my dad ever did in his entire life. I made more in one day than my dad made in a year. I made in one hour more than he made in a year. Um, and I, I was my dad's hero. And uh, my brother um, is in California now. He's not a dentist. He is the largest. Uh, uh, he's got a big deal. It's not a big deal. And my brother and I uh, were very successful people. <laughs> we're both in alcohol and I. Uh, I guess we got the American dream. And see, what, what my dad didn't know uh, was that maybe that's not the dream. Because for certain people, people like me, um, no matter how successful you are, if you feel inadequate, there's not enough success to make you feel adequate. I mean, I, I don't care what the number is. If you keep raising the bottom, you get the number, and that's not the number. Five million is not the number. Eight million is not the number. Maybe 12 million is the number. There is no number. When you feel inadequate, you are inadequate. I don't care if you have eight cars or six cars or six homes, you are inadequate. I didn't know that, and and I did what uh, Johnny did. I drank, and stuff happened, and it was wonderful. And I kept drinking. And here, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my whole story in a, in a thing that the beginners. Uh, I I have something to do with the beginners meeting back home, and uh, we have some people here that uh, participated. Kelly, you're uh, you're you're sober, and you were sitting in the red chairs. You were one of the beginners, and were you there when we did the test group? 
true, he said. And, and one day I, I walked into the entertainment many years ago, it was actually 1981, and I, I had an idea that, that maybe uh, Kelly and I and, and the 15,000 people who have now sat in the red chairs, and that's the real number, Kelly, over 15,000 newcomers have sat in the beginners, and we know, because we get out, get out beginners guys, so they've raised their hands and say, I'm here for the first day, and we've given out over 15,000. Isn't that an interesting thing? And there's always at least 200 newcomers in our beginners meeting every Monday night. You know that's true. And you know that's true. You sit in the back of the beginners meeting. Anyway, just, just to make sure, just to make sure that we were talking about the same thing, I asked the beginners, the people who are new, like the people who are less than six months here, what is an alcoholic? See, it's important that we know that we, uh, I'm, see, if I'm talking Russian and you're hearing, uh, uh, a Polish, we do not communicate. And you can nod your head and we can get as far as we're not communicating. And so uh, it is a little important. It is important that we understand what an alcoholic is. And, and here's the, the dilemma. There's nowhere in the book Alcoholics Anonymous or in the literature that gives the definition of alcoholic. There's stories and descriptions. But wouldn't it be nice if you knew to have a definition of alcoholic? Wouldn't it be nice if we can give you a definition? Because then you could apply it to yourself and you could leave. Because you know you're not an alcoholic. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to be an alcoholic. Who wants to be an alcoholic? I mean, yeah, let me give you, let me give you something to really look forward to. If you're an alcoholic and you join Alcoholics Anonymous, you can go to meetings for the rest of your life. <laughs> Nobody in the right mind wants to do that. And the truth of the matter is that most people come to Alcoholics Anonymous not to put themselves in, but put themselves out. Well, that's the real truth, because nobody wants to do that. And that's okay. It's okay. Your motive's not important. It's okay. So I asked them to make an alcoholic. Since nobody in the room knew an alcoholic was, they shared it. I said, let's make an alcoholic. And they looked at me like I was crazy, and I said, here's what we're going to do. You're all new. You're all within the, you're all six weeks, six months sober. Six days, whatever the number is. Let's make an alcoholic in the, in the laboratory of our mind, and I'll hold up an invisible test tube. And let's make an alcoholic. From your experience, you're 20 years sober. Give me an ingredient that you feel is necessary in order to make an alcoholic. What ingredient would be in there that would most likely be in most alcoholics of your type? And here's what happened. A little girl in the back of the room said, put in fear. An older man who's 67 years over, or old and sober about three days put in depression. And then they went on and on and on. They put in anxiety. They put in loathing, self-loathing. They put in remorse and guilt. They put in perfectionism. They put in inferiority, superiority, ego, anger, hopelessness. They put all this stuff in. They went on and on and on. And then the test tube was full and they were silent. And it dawned on me. Tony, you know what they didn't put in? Tony, you know what they didn't put in? Alcohol. And I realized, all my life I've been talking to newcomers about drinking. They know that alcohol is only a symptom of their problem. Before they even read the book, they knew that. And I'm talking to them about drinking, and they're the world's authorities about drinking. There's nothing about drinking they don't know. And I asked them to put in some alcohol in their test tube and tell me what happened in their life. And here's what they said. 20 days sober. Here's what they said. If they put alcohol in their test tube, something happened. Alcohol put in on a, into their test tube 
appears to dilute that which is in the testes. And as they drank, they felt better. And the fear went away, the loneliness went away, and the anger subsided, and the inferiority, and on and on and on. And it's when they drink. That's what they said. And I said, well, well, what happens next? And they said, well, you just keep putting it in. And what they told me is that alcoholics of some type, and my type, it is true, if you keep putting alcohol in the test tube, instead of diluting, at some point, for some reason, I don't understand, if you drink past the point that alcohol works and stops working, a new dilemma, a new phenomena occurs. Instead of diluting what's in the test tube, it intensifies what's in the test tube. And if you drink past the point that it no longer works, I guarantee you, you will know a new fear. If you think self-loathing, if you know meaning of self-loathing, keep drinking past that point, and you will know a new meaning. And on and on and on. And, and it was a funny thing. And, 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 and that was my story of my drinking. And, and, I know that, and when I was 30 years old, I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I called a number in the phone book, and uh, uh, I, I, somebody answered the phone, I heard their voice, and I hung up. And I hung up, and I took an inventory. And, and my inventory, like Chinese inventory, is probably very similar. See, they think in AA, we don't know about inventory. You can take an inventory story with that. Here's how my inventory goes. I'm too young to be an alcoholic. I'm too smart to be an alcoholic. I'm too uh, ingenious to be an alcoholic, too pretty to be an alcoholic, I'm too successful to be an alcoholic. I don't know, I'm not really an alcoholic. I'm under pressure, I'm kind of screwed up, but I have this living problem, but, but, uh, but I'm not an alcoholic. So at the time I call alcoholics, now I'm 30 years old, I'm practicing law. I already, I already in, my, in my mind, was a super successful guy, and I had more than my dad ever had, and I'm only a kid. And I'm 32 years old, and I call alcoholics now for the second time, and and I hung up when I heard their voice, and I got that same, same good feeling. And I kind of congratulated myself, good for you, Frank, you did something about your drinking. But, <laughs> but I took an inventory, and, and I lived at the time in a big house on top of a hill. And, and, I, and I belonged to a country club, and I had the stuff that people have who have made it. And I can't be an alcoholic. People like that are an alcoholic. They're troubled. They're confused. They got some problems, but they're not alcoholic. And I, I look in the mirror and I said to myself, I have a wife and I have kids and I have prominence and I, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm 34 years old. November 3rd, 1971, I call alcoholic and I right? I call the downtown office alcoholic phenomenon. I, I don't hang up when the woman answers the phone and, uh, she says, uh, after I say I'm, uh, I'm home and I want to know about AA, she says, what is your name? And I am offended and I do not want to tell her because I'm ashamed and I'm making the call and I don't want anyone to know and I don't know who she'll tell and I won't tell her mom. And she says, I can't help you. If you want help and you want somebody from AA to talk to you, you'll have to give me your name and your address and your phone number, your age, and you have to tell us what to do for a living. And I, with some hesitancy, I told her my name. I thought I was 34 years of age. I lived in Taylor's High School and I, and I was worried. And she said, I can't hear you from a lawyer. She said, I can't hear you from a lawyer. That's it all. Now, that's not important to me, but 
I'll tell you, uh, BPI was on November 3rd, 1971, I thought it was the first word they were called Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> And to show you how funny that really is, in my group, we have a little group, my group, my home group has 400, 500 people every Monday night, and we have so many lawyers, we have kind of an unwritten law. If you bring another lawyer, you've got to bring a housewife and two truck drivers. Just to balance it out. Because <laughs> we got to maintain the little group honesty we have left. And, and, uh, and, he said to me, if you have, uh, if you're serious about your problem, there's a place in Chicago you can go. And, uh, I said, well, where is that? Give me the address. And, and uh, I don't know the city. I live out in the suburbs, you know, where the, where they live. And, uh, um, and, uh, I got ready to go to AA. So I went in my closet. I had this big walk-in closet and I took out an imported blue silk suit. And, uh, I had a, a suntan. I always had a suntan and I, you know, part of the costume and this. Um, and I uh, put on this beautiful silk tie. Uh, I had this shirt made, and not just for that one. And I had blue pant loaded shoes, and I had a diamond watch in there, a diamond ring, a big diamond ring here, and uh, and a lot of gold. I had a gold thing here, real gold, not artificial gold. And I got out, I, I walked out of the house, the big house on top of the hill, and I was in this Cadillac out there in the big circular drive, and I got in my car, and I went to join our call Anonymous. And, I, and, and as I went to AA, uh, this neighborhood started to deteriorate upon myself on Skid Row, and I kind of secretly knew that that's where you were, and I wondered what you were going to look like, and I was sure that when you saw me pull up, because uh, I was going to pull right up, I did, it was a storefront place in Skid Row, and and uh, I pulled that new black Cadillac right in front of there, and I, I, I picked myself out in front of the window that you were behind, and I walked in, and, and I was certain that when you saw me, you'd go in. Stop, You cannot come in here. You see, those are the alcoholics. If you want to leave the donation, we'd appreciate it. When I walked in, and the first person that saw me walked up and said, you want help? I'm thinking, am I part of you? Know? Well, it's very simple. You see, I don't care how much gold, or how many cars, or how many girls, or how many clubs, or how many anything you put on here in the sky, he looked in my eyes, and you cannot disguise the fear in your eyes. With all the gold, and all the cars, and all the girls, it's there. And he knew I needed help, and I stayed with that young man for about seven hours. I remember some time in there of crying. I, I cried, and I told him I, I, I lived the way I never wanted to live. I, I do stuff to my wife, and I mean, I love the woman. I chose her and my kids and these three girls, and I'm like an animal sometimes, and I don't want to be an animal. I, I can't guarantee what will happen when I drink, and I drink again and again, and I, I wake up and I say, why? What's wrong with me? Why did I do that? Did I do that? And I pull up here and I pull up and I say, I won't do it again. And then I do it again and again. And then I, I say to myself, I can't live like this. I gotta stop. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna do, okay, I'm stop. That's it. And then I do it again. And it doesn't get better. It gets worse. And then I, I say to myself and I, I can't live like this. And he says, listen, it's getting late. Let's, let's go get a sandwich and, and we'll go to a meeting. And right away I thought to myself, meeting? What do I want a meeting for? 
what do I want to meet him? I've been in AA all day. I'm not, and I don't want to be in I feel better now. I mean, I told this guy that I don't know about this stuff. And, and I, I gotta get out of here. And I, and I lied to him. I, I gotta go home. And it's time for dinner and I gotta be home. I, 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 I we eat at six. And, and that's true. But it's also that we eat at six. That dinner's at six is true. I never go home for dinner. I haven't been home for dinner for five years. Who goes home for dinner? Not alcoholics in my life. I go out to unwind, to relax, to socialize, to further my career after the office and I go to dinner. Dinner's the wife and shit. In fact, they like it when I don't come home, I think, by now. Because my wife is tired of me saying I'm sorry. See, she bought I'm sorry the first 10 times, 50 times, 80 times, 100 times. After a while, she just didn't care anymore. You can't keep telling me you're sorry and do it again and again and again. I got to stop thinking and believing and caring. I guess that's what she thought because she did all of the above. And, and I called her and on the way home, I told her what I had done for her and the kids. I'd gone to AA and uh, she said, uh, we're eating at six to pick them over. The table be set and she hung up. She didn't care about that Five minutes to six, I walked into that room. There were three girls sitting at the table. Beautiful little girls, my daughters, and uh, and a wife who no longer cared, and uh, and girls that had computerized. Never seen computerized guys with alcoholics in my type. The children can't look at you, and when they look at you, there's this thing going on in their head. What kind of day did Daddy have? What kind of day did Daddy have? And the reason they have to, they didn't have computers in 1971. They're learning stuff. They computerized. My kids had a, they had to discern. Of what kind of day that daddy had because you see if daddy's a zero and he's one and he's quick and he's sweet and he's powerful and he's happy. He comes in and he tells you he loves you and you're God thank you and you're the most wonderful child in the world. God isn't it great. If daddy's hurt or daddy failed or daddy had a bad day or daddy was frightened, daddy transfers that to anybody near him and daddy might just walk past you and you're sitting eating your cereal and he may just knock you off the chair. Because you left the shoes in the kitchen, in the middle of the dining room. And it's very important that Daddy doesn't know, but you gotta know, because you gotta know, kids are all called to my type friends, and you suddenly move towards the mountain, and that can't happen, it shouldn't happen. How could that happen? I mean, I'm a bright guy. That doesn't happen, but it does happen. It did happen, and it will happen again, and again and again, and it's part of history to people who know that it can't happen. Because they love their children. It cannot happen. I cannot dig myself to that. And the phone rang and it was six o'clock and I heard, I picked up the phone and I had the worst voice I've ever heard in my life. And here's what I heard. Frank, my name is George. I got your name from Central Office. I understand you got a problem with boo. Oh. <laughs> and I said, uh, good evening, George. I, um, <laughs> yeah, I called the, the office and, uh, and, uh, but I went to an AA club and I was there all day. So, uh, I'd like to come over to your house and talk to you about it. And I'm thinking to myself, come over to my house? I live in a big house in a fancy neighborhood. I live on the corner. Big circular drive. It's a high hill. Everybody, how could I explain to my neighbors that Alcoholics Anonymous drove up? How do you come? I mean, I don't know. Do you have a, Volkswagen bus with a peace sign, I have no idea what you have. I'm thinking to myself, come to my house, how could I do this to my family? 
Now, this is the same guy who just a few hours before, with tears in his eyes, called a number and reached out for help, and who desperately wanted it. Just a few hours later, now when help is on its way, I don't want it. And I tell you that instantly I used a talent that God gave me. I have a unique talent and ability that I think really made it possible for me to have what I consider a very successful career in the law. Now, I retired uh, five years ago, and I don't practice law anymore. I do something else. But I was destined to be a lawyer because I have this gift. And it's simply this. I can lie with no thought process. <laughs> you put pressure on me, and I don't have to think about it. I just lie. And if you wanted to come to my house, I thought, come to my house? I can't do this to my kids and my wife. We just got me carpeting, and this is a lovely house. And I said, listen, George, normally they'll be okay, but tonight I have to go to a PCA meeting. Now, here's what's so wonderful about it. I had never gone to a PCA meeting in my life. I had never known a living human being who had ever gone to a PCA. I mean, I had heard about the PCA, but in my life's experience, nobody I've ever personally was acquainted with ever went to a PCA And I didn't even have to know I decided to keep doing it. And he said, what time is that meeting over? <laughs> That's not a problem, even though I've never gone. I said, 8.30. And he said, I'll be there at 8.45. <laughs> and I said, George, you're not going to, um, I don't know how to tell you this, George, after a regular scheduled PCA meeting, there's a board director's meeting, and I'm on the board. <laughs> what time is that meeting over? <laughs> 10 o'clock. I'll be there at 10.15. <laughs> I said, George, I don't know if you don't worry about it. <laughs> Those two people know George. He's at a meeting every Monday night. Isn't he? And, uh, I said, George, after the board director's meeting, there's a finance committee meeting, and uh, we're raising money for the PCA. <laughs> what time is that meeting over? <laughs> I said, George, I don't know, probably not. I said, listen, George, this isn't going to work. Why don't you lose your name and number, and when it's more convenient, I'll get back to you. You hear in the Alcoholics Anonymous that God speaks to the membership, maybe. Maybe that's true. If that's true, on November 3rd, 1971, God had a dirty mouth. <laughs> he started to swear and scream. He said stuff that I can't say. No deference to the dignity of, of this meeting. And here's that little girl on He used every word that he, he, he swore. You know they say Frank Sinatra is a great singer because of phrasing. George is a great swearer because of phrasing. <laughs> I mean, four letter, four letter words that 
trip off his time. I can tell you this, he had never met any member of my family, but he seemed to know my mother. <laughs> and he said, listen, <laughs> you think I got nothing better to be on this phone and talk and do a no good litany of these words? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know, but I, in retrospect, I, if I could have reported them to someone, I would have been. <laughs> he said things like, you disgust me. He said, listen, before I hang up, would you answer a couple of questions? And I said, yes. This really happened. This isn't totally unquiet. They know this. They tell you know George. So you know George. This really happened. Exactly it. I said, what are your questions? He said, I said, why are you somebody famous? I said, yep. Why are you somebody important? Yep. What are you a lawyer or something? <laughs> and I said, yep. And he said, listen, famous, important lawyer. I'm a lawyer. And they called me from the Chicago office about calls and I was after I got a court afternoon. And they gave me your name and your address and told me you're a lawyer. Listen, Mr. Important, famous lawyer. I've been practicing law for fifteen years, five miles from where you live. And I have never heard of you. <laughs> I said, what time are you coming? <laughs> and he said, I'm not coming because you're not worth it. That's my 12-step call. In case you're ever wondering what to do on a 12-step call, just tell them they think or something. I don't know. That's what he did. And he said, you're not coming because you're not worth it. What I heard is you can't have it. And then I knew I'd be an A.A. Because I'm the kind of alcoholic that you tell me, there are promises, they're available to you, I don't want them. If you tell me, there are your promises, but you can't have them, then I say, try to stop me. And I was going to join AA. I didn't care what he said. And he said, if you want to come to my house, you want to come and talk to me, come to my house. I said, where do you live? And he said, in Beverly Hills. And, well, that was a sweet town. Because Beverly Hills, Chicago, is like Beverly Hills in California and many other places. It's just an elegant place of prestigious homes. And I knew I was getting in the good brand. <laughs> and I drove up to that house in Beverly Hills, I parked my car, I went up those stairs and knocked on the door, and it seemed like 5,000 years in, in purgatory, and the door opened, this little ugly guy, and, and George always said to me, why do you say I was a little ugly guy? I said, well, because you are, George. <laughs> and, uh, Especially with his daughters one night at the meeting, and he said, you know, that's very rude to say in front of one's daughters. I said, your daughter's New York. <laughs> and, uh, and he opened the door, and then, Frank, I said, yes, sir, he said, wait there. And I waited there, and he went back in and got his coat, and he took me to me. About a year later, 
we were in a restaurant and, and having coffee, and he said, hey, Frank, remember the time you came to my house? I said, yeah. I said, you ever wonder why I had to wait outside? I said, no, sir. I never did. He said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, you see, Frank, we just got new carpet in the George was the messenger. Uh, I now sponsor George. George was an A guy, an A speaker. I followed George around. He did stuff like this and, and said that I was there and George was here. And George, uh, started talking, did a lot of talking about AA and one day he decided he wasn't an alcoholic and he came and drank. And we drank for a bunch of years. And then one day I met George. He's coming off the drunk. I happened to be in a place I'd never been in before in my life, and there was George, and there was me. And he said, Frank, I need help. And I told him what he told me, and I took him where he brought me, and I've been his sponsor now for, so, almost 20 years. He's still a little ugly guy. <laughs> Here's what I like. I learned that together we can do something that we can't do ourselves. I learned that this is not a self-help program, this is a God-help program. I learned that this is a spiritual program. Notwithstanding the fact that the most common word you hear at SAA meetings is I, and the least, the most rare word you'll ever hear is God. I tell you that in the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous, the word God was not hidden from newcomers. They, God must have a hell of a sense of humor to be able to love us while we continue to be ashamed of him. When we hide his existence and hide the fact that this is a spiritual program for fear that you may not like it. If you're not sure that you are an alcoholic, you should drink. That's what it says in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. That's not my opinion. The book Alcoholics Anonymous does not tell you not to drink. We cannot make you sober. You must bring that to the table. What Alcoholics Anonymous is is a program of recovery that guarantees that spiritual awakening. As a result of which, you will not have to drink to dilute what's in the tester. The program that Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to do, and the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are designed to do what, they, what alcohol used to do for you. In the direct proportion that you put the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in your tester, the fear will go away. So will the anxiety and the depression, the loneliness and the anger. AA works like alcohol works. AA will not stop working unless you stop doing it. That is my experience and I have stopped doing it and I got those results. Everybody in this room is full of spiritual. Or any church put in that book that spiritual is kind of like health. We all have it. It's just positive or negative. I believe that's true. I believe that the God of Alcoholics Anonymous is not, is not, is not angered with me. I do not offend him and I couldn't offend him because for me to inflict pain on God, I would have to be God. I could not hurt God because if I could hurt God, I would be more powerful than God. And what Bill Wilson said is that people like you, Frank, have to stop playing God. And although Bill Wilson could never grasp of a religion, he could grasp and found it necessary to tell people like me that we must find a spiritual way of life or else we will die. And he did not mean our heart would stop. He meant that the quality of our life would be meaningless. I tell you that I have found an alcoholic anonymous a loving God. He never was trying to punish me and my destiny is to be sober, happy, joyous, and free. That is my destiny. 
The only thing that will keep me from experiencing that is me and my resistance to do the things I'm supposed to do. I will continue to pursue the right to destroy myself and to seek myself. I will pass on the opportunity to, to learn a new way of life. What God said in, to the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous is, I will grant you one wish. There will be a day in which you can start anew. You can start as if you were reborn. This will be the first day of the rest of your life. You will take these steps and I will remove from you through these steps all that, all that memory. You will not fear the past or wish to shut the door on it. You will be as clean as the day you were born. You will write down on a piece of paper and you will share with me and another human being the exact nature of your wrong. You will be ready to have me remove those. If God says whatever God is, whoever God is, I don't know. I believe that God loves me and loves you. Why do people like you and I make it? I don't know. Why do so many not make it? I hear in AA that there but for the grace of God go I. I do not believe that. I do not believe that God picks and chooses certain people to stand up. I don't believe that God said, Okay, Johnny, it's you, and all the rest of them are going to die. they got to fail, they got to destroy themselves, they got to live in terror and wish till they die, or wish they were dead, or take their own life. But you, Johnny, are appointed. I do not believe that's the case. I believe that everybody that failed around Johnny had the same grace Johnny got. I don't believe that Bobby Johns is unique in that he's the only one in St. Paul, Minnesota, that was, that was decided by God to survive in AA. I don't believe that Tom... Now here and before North Carolina, we're anointed by God and given this special right to, to prevail. And I, I believe that every alcoholic gets exactly the same amount of grace. God is his God must give each one of his creations equal. God cannot be prejudiced. God cannot pick and choose. Then why do some people make it and some people don't? If everyone gets the same amount of grace from God, why are there so many losers and why are there so few winners? And what is the difference between the winner and the loser? I simply think it's this. Those that lose, reject. And those that win, accept. In the promises of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says what will happen. And it's beautiful stuff. We will know a new freedom and a new happiness, and on and on and on. And they say, are these extravagant promises? We think not. They will always come, sometimes slowly, Sometimes quicker if we work for them. We work together. We hope together. We pray together. We survive together. Thank you very much.